0: Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya
1: and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio.
2: Travel around the globe with us today as we go to Namibia to save the cheetah, cruise with Rick Steves in the Mediterranean, and discover a new Detroit. Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially conscious and responsible travel and lifestyle. We're your host, Tanya Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're going to embark on an exciting journey today.
0: Today on World Footprints, we will travel to Namibia with Dr. Laurie Marker, founder of the Cheetah Conservation Fund.
3: There were very few cheetahs in captivity, people around the world, and I would like to thank.
0: Since 1990, Dr. Marker has pioneered new ideas in cheetah conservation and has formed cooperative alliances on behalf of the cheetah that have never before been possible. Coming up, you'll hear from a familiar voice, PBS travel host and author Rick Steves. Rick just returned from two Mediterranean cruises, and he joins us to talk about his newest guidebook, Mediterranean Cruise Ports.
1: Right out of the starting gate, this book is just four months old, but it's already the best-selling cruise guide for Mediterranean
4: travelers.
0: Detroit is a city that's very vibrant and very much alive.
4: Detroit is a haven for that. I mean, you saw, you saw at least a few eras of musical development come from Detroit. You know, Motown, you've got a techno. Um, but there's no better collection of French Gothic architecture.
0: We'll enjoy exploring the revival of Detroit with Philip Lowry, founder of Detroit Lives. Visit us and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick.
2: Dr. Lori Marker is founder and executive director of the Cheetah Conservation Fund. Since 1990, Dr. Marker has pioneered new ideas in cheetah conservation and has formed cooperative alliances on behalf of the cheetah that have never been before possible. She is recognized around the world as one of the leading experts on cheetahs both in the wild and in captivity. In addition to many international awards for her work in cheetah conservation, in 2000, she was recognized as one of Time Magazine's Heroes of the Planet, and in 2008 was given the Gold Medal Award from the Society of Women Geographers, among many, many others that would take me several breaths to to say. Uh, Dr. Marker, welcome to World Footprints.
3: Thank you very much. Tell
2: us what the plight of the cheetah is today. How many are left in the wild, and and what are some of the challenges that you're facing right now?
3: In the wild, there are about 10,000 cheetahs left, and they're found throughout about 24 countries in Africa. The last of the Asian cheetahs are found in Iran, where there are only about 70. The biggest problem facing the cheetah is fragmentation. So our landscapes where the cheetahs are found, which are not primarily in game reserves, because of the other large predators, lions and the hyenas steal their young, uh, steal their food, and, and kill their young, and are are actually quite a problem for them. And it pushes them out into the livestock farming areas, usually around outside of game reserves, and then we end up with human wildlife conflict. So that's the biggest issue that they're faced with, and that human-wildlife conflict revolves around um, working with the farming communities and having them learn more about good livestock management and how they can protect their livestock versus just going out and randomly killing cheetahs.
2: Mm-hmm. Are, are they, I mean, 10,000 cheetahs in the wild is not, uh, that, that's not a very large number. Are they on the endangered species list yet or headed towards that?
3: Well, they're definitely on the endangered species list here in the United States. Worldwide, through an organization that monitors our animals, called the IUCN, or the World Conservation Union, they are a vulnerable species, um, which is the next level to endangered, although several of the populations of cheetahs are critically endangered. For instance, the Asian cheetah in Iran is critically endangered. The North and West African cheetahs are as well because the population numbers are so low in certain areas, like 70 animals is not very many animals. Where I live down in Namibia, we've doubled the population in the 20 years that I've been there through working together with the farming communities to teach them how to live in harmony with a predator, the cheetah.
2: You know, a few years ago, we uh my husband and I uh actually enjoyed a visit to Safari West out in San Francisco and we took a um a photo opportunity uh with a cheetah, one of the cheetahs uh on on site. And I've always been a big cat lover. I'm a cat fanatic and you might hear Irwin or our little bad one running around meowing um because I'm not giving him any attention right now. Uh, but you know, I for me, you know, uh, the spirit of of cat somehow resonates with me. Why, for you, the cheetah in particular uh, among the big cat family? Why why your focus on the cheetah?
3: Well, I started working with them in the early 1970s, as I said, in a park up in Oregon, who um, I actually knew the people who owned the Safari West. Even back then, they hadn't built their their park yet, but we, um, when I started so long ago, really there were very few cheetahs in captivity, and people around the world, when I would write to them and ask questions on cheetahs, they said, when you find out something about cheetahs, let us know, uh, because they had a very short lifespan, they didn't breed well in captivity, and nobody really knew anything about them, and so that interested me, because I was just fascinated with the species. And from that, I kind of wanted to know more and more. And the more I learned, the more I wanted to share, and learn. So Mm -hmm. it's been a a a lifetime of love, learning, and sharing, and trying to understand this just amazing animal that you know the fastest land animal. And it is a cat, and yet it has a lot of dog-like characteristics as well, like semi-non-retractable claws, which have been adapted for them to help them run up the speeds of seventy miles an hour. But every part of the cheetah is just so special and so the years that I've spent understanding again in captivity how to breed them and then from that the the vulnerability that they have in the wild and then learning more about them in the wild from the biology standpoint into the ecology of how they move throughout these lands. And then the conservation side is obviously if we know more about them, can we actually learn to live with
2: them? Mm-hmm. So
3: my lifetime of fascination really is just revolved around the mysteries that are um, are make the animals so special.
2: Well, they're certainly uh, majestic animals. Talking about conservation, what are some of the efforts that are in development right now in Kenya, South Africa, Botswana, and, and Iran? And I know some of our audience members, uh, as I was, surprised to learn that there. are are actually efforts going on in Iran and that there's actually a cheetah population albeit very small um, in that country
3: yes it's it's exciting actually they set up a program probably about 10 years ago called the Iranian Cheetah Society and these were young men who had followed the work that I've been doing in Namibia and set up their foundation so over the years they have been actively working in conservation we've worked closely with them I've been over to Iran a couple times and they bring groups of biologists into Namibia to work with us and our team to learn how to conduct some of the field research techniques like radio telemetry and collecting of data and how to analyze data. So we've worked very closely together um, on helping that team of people grow their conservation program around cheetahs. and. Um, We've worked with people throughout all of Africa.
2: Another unique program that you created is the uh, livestock guard dog program. Talk a little bit about that, and uh, again, you know, dogs and cats, are two different uh, <laughs> uh, natural uh, natural enemies. How does that work with the conservation efforts?
3: Well, being natural enemies, and dogs are so very intelligent. They, um, we use a breed of dogs called the tangle dog or the Anatolian Shepherd, their breeds that come from Turkey. And these dogs have been working with livestock protection for thousands of years where they grow up with the herd, they live in the herd, and they act as a sentry. So they um, are, are smart, they mark territory, they kind of circle the herd and watch what's going on from all aspects, protecting them from animals like wolves, bears, or in Namibia, they're protecting them against cheetahs and leopards and and jackal. What the dogs do is if they see a predator, they bark loudly and say to the predator, I'm here, I'm big, and this is my flock.
2: Do you face some land management challenges as well, particularly in you know, the African uh, countries where you know, Namibia and, and South Africa are growing tourist destinations? Um, also, and, and there's always new development coming up, new safaris, uh, private reserves being uh, being built. Is, is there a land management conflict between, uh, you know, the, the development and the habitat for these animals?
3: Well, the, because the cheetahs live on these outside of protected areas, and in southern Africa there have been a lot of things called game farms that have been developed or game guest farms. And many of these are fenced, and the fencing of the land causes a big problem. We are actively involved in programs in Namibia called conservancies, where there are not big fences put up with wildlife inside of them. But instead, you travel through large areas, and there's wildlife integrated into the landscape. So land use is a very big problem in understanding what happens with you uh, fence areas and fragment more land.
2: You know, I recently posted an article about uh, poaching problems in Namibia, and I'm wondering, you know, besides farmers uh, pr- trying to protect their livestock, are you also challenged with the um, influx of fur traders or trappers and, and game hunters uh, as well? Is that a problem that that you deal with in regards to uh, the cheetah?
3: Well, not as much. The uh, hunting industry in Namibia is, a, is very ethical and very closely monitored, and our laws in Namibia allow for a um, sustainability and management. So some of the issues that we're more faced with have been um, issues around maybe animals and going into um, young animals being caught in, and being sold. But I'm not, Namibia is not the, the biggest problem in poaching, because most of our wildlife has has value back into the communities, mm-hmm. and the communities then protect the wildlife in a, in a very strong way. But poaching can be a really big problem in many of the other countries where I work, and mainly the poaching has been on the prey base, where people are hungry, and so they poach the prey, and then... They've got snares out, and the cheetah could get caught the snares. Or if there's no prey, then the cheetah then will fall. Um, it won't go and hunt the, the livestock. So these are the all uh, the problems that we face um, back and forth within all of Africa. And that poaching can really be a, a
2: major problem in some of the countries. I want to um, shift to a, a topical subject. Something we saw in the news uh, with regards to this private reserve out in Columbus, Ohio, um, where the uh, the owner apparently uh, released all of the wild animals that he had in captivity, including cheetah. Is there a need for strict, stricter regulations or just outright bans on these? private reserves.
3: Well, one of the issues we talk about a lot is there's more captive tigers in the United States in in sanctuaries or private people's facilities than there are left in the wild. So understanding um, the vulnerability of these species in the wild and then having them and exploiting them, I think, in captivity is a big problem. Many of the people, if they get an exotic animal, they don't know what to do with it, and then they end up in in sanctuaries. I'm not familiar with the release of animals in, in Ohio. I do know um, people within Ohio, and there aren't cheetahs in private hands in this country. We've been able to, from a zoological um, a perspective, um, from the American Zoo Association working together with all the, the handful of zoos in the country that do have cheetahs and the numbers in captivity are so low they're very carefully monitored and that's one of the things with the laws in the United States are there are laws that um, for you know, facilities and, and, and holding them they do have to have permits so these are all parts of the aspects of our government wildlife management or Captive management are all rules in in how you work with that. However, within that, many people do want exotic animals, and the problem there is they don't often know how to care for them. Mm -hmm. And so these become great problems for those animals living in those environments, and then no, these animals shouldn't go be released into the wild because they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. They're not animals that know how to live in the wild, And they're exotic animals, not from our country.
2: What can our audience do to to support your efforts and um, and learn more about the events that you're holding uh, in this area or uh, elsewhere?
3: Well, I think that having people go to our website, which is cheetah.org, would allow them to learn more about what's going on. At Cheetah Conservation Fund, learning more about the cheetah, and where we are active throughout the country and around the world. Because we do have chapters and, and supporters within many areas of the country, as well as other areas in the world, who are actively involved in learning more about the cheetah, working with us to raise funds that are needed to keep our research programs and conservation programs going strong in Namibia and throughout the cheetah's range. So I welcome people to go there. They can learn about our work and ways to support us. So I always say in maybe people have, you know, when people give birthday gifts or Mother's Day gifts or things like that, to maybe perhaps look at going to our website and maybe sponsoring a livestock guarding dog and giving a gift that will do more for people than a gift that you go out and buy. And then people... It spreads the word throughout their communities and friends as well, to share with them that we're helping save cheetahs.
2: hmm And you know, and I can say, I I know you have a, I believe you have a donate button on the website as well, cheetah.org. And uh, I can say, you know, you are doing amazing work. Um, You have a lot of, a lot of moving parts to what you're doing, and you're operating on such a minimal uh, budget, and so I know money is always uh, welcome and, and, and needed. I don't know how you do it. Um, I think you're living on fume, <laughs> and you certainly have much more energy than than I have. <laughs> um, I certainly appreciate, uh, appreciate everything that you're doing uh, to conserve and save the uh, the cheetah which is a beautiful animal uh, Dr. Lori Marker with the Cheetah Conservation Fund, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you very much I would love to get to know all of you on Thanks.
2: Coming up, European travel guru
0: Rick Steves takes us sailing throughout the Mediterranean.
1: There's a huge market of travelers that are taking cruises they've got one day in Spain you uh, know, Barcelona and two days in France. There's a side trip
0: Next is World Footprints Radio continues.
2: Hi, my name is Anna. I'm from Romania. Make sure you don't miss the World Footprints Radio.
0: It's back to school time again, and our retailers at NationwideMall.com are offering tremendous bargains for back to school shoppers. Whether it's grade school or college items you're looking for, you'll find shopping NationwideMall.com will help save you cash. We have a huge selection of stores to assist you with your back-to-school shopping needs. That's NationwideMall.com, America's online shopping mall.
1: Hi, this is James K. from Los Angeles, California. And I just want to say I've traveled all over the world. But whenever I come back home, I always tune in to World with And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick.
2: Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Rick Steves is on a mission to help make European travel accessible and meaningful for Americans. Since 1973, Rick has spent four months every year exploring Europe. He's used his travel knowledge to create 51 guidebooks and counting including his newest mediterranean cruise ports, he produces a weekly radio show and a pbs broadcast and rick has just returned from two mediterranean cruises and he's taking some time off of his travel schedule to join us today welcome to world footprints rick
1: thanks Tony. good to be with you
2: Well, you know, you've come a long long way since publishing your first self-published book how, tell us a little bit about your journey.
1: Well, um, it's interesting to look back on that. I've uh, I self-published my first guidebook when I was 25 years old. That was 1980, and uh, that was Europe through the back door. And uh, since then, I've been primarily, you know, a, a travel just a travel teacher, writing guidebooks and spending four months a year in Europe, making all sorts of mistakes, um, taking careful notes, in hopes of. Uh, Letting other people learn from my mistakes rather than their own and travel smoother. And uh, people have two very precious resources, time and money. And uh, of course, you got to save money, but you also want to get the most out of your time and use your time smartly. So that's a theme of ours. So I've been writing guidebooks for uh, since 1980. What's that? 30 years. And 1990 made my first TV show. Though so for the tw- last 20 years, uh, every uh, every two years, we come out with 13 or 14 new shows for public television. And uh, in the last five or six years, I've been making radio shows for public radio. And now our show is carried, you know, in about 150 stations around the country. Um, I've got a staff of 80 people here in Seattle, and uh, big part of our business. Business is organizing groups and taking groups around Europe. We took uh, had our best year ever uh, this last year. We took about four hundred groups, eleven thousand people around around Europe on Europe through the back door. Rick Steves
4: tours.
2: Mm. You know, I mean, you didn't really uh, start off uh, necessarily as um, to build a career as a travel journalist. I know you didn't study communications or journalism in in university. So how did you make the the job.
1: Well, the best uh, travel writer, I think, is a person who is, is primarily and fundamentally a traveler, not primarily and fundamentally a communications major, you know. And uh, I just spent, I've spent a quarter of, a third of my adult life, four months a year for the last 30 years, living out of a 9 by 22 by 14 inch carry on the airplane size suitcase <laughs> with a passion for, you know, um, helping Americans broaden their perspectives through travel. Um, and, uh, you know, I measure my profit not by dollars uh, the, on the bottom line, but by how many trips we Impact. So I'm very um, sort of creative and aggressive of just spreading our information. Mm-hmm. We give our TV shows to TV stations all over the country for free. Uh, we have a very generous website. We give our radio shows for free. You know, we make money on our tour program. Um, our guidebooks are uh, designed so people can do our tours without us. That's kind of the theme for the guidebooks. And um, it's just a lot of fun. I didn't intend to do this, but, you know, I've been teaching. Well, if I look back on 30 years of teaching, for the first Ten years, the 80s, it was all cheap tricks and budget tricks and traveling on the cheap and stowing away and staying healthy and all the practical travel tips. The next ten years, the 90s, was all about appreciating history, art, and culture. I wrote a book called Europe 101, History and Art for Travelers. This was a time when I was guiding a lot of tours around Europe and really excited about just turning people on to the the, the art and the culture and the cuisine and so on. And then, ever since about 912, I've found that uh, I've been really uh, my heart, as far as the travel teacher is going, is all about um, challenging Americans to get out of their comfort zones, broaden their perspectives through travel, and uh, become better citizens of the planet. You know, we're four percent of this planet, and we're a nice four percent, but uh, it's nice to get to know the other 96 percent. And you know, if uh, uh, you know, people love to say God bless America, but. But uh, what about the rest of the planet? You know, I think that it's just really cool to get out there and and, and realize that uh, it's a beautiful place and uh, it's a good place. And uh, there's a lot of fear being uh, pushed around in our society. And I really think um, fear is for people who don't get out very much. You know, the, the most fearful people in our society are the people that spend too much time watching 24/7 uh, news coverage. And I have found that the flip side of fear is understanding. And you gain that when you uh, leave our country and talk to people who find other truths to be self evident and God given.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, your show, and one of the comments I wanted to make to you is that, you know, I've seen your show, uh, both television. Well, I've seen the television show, I've listened to your radio show, and uh, you're correct in your uh, assessment that you are a, a teacher, you're teaching people. And uh, what we attempt to do here is really. You know I think uh, in addition to what you're doing is really kind of get people to to recognize that we all share a common humanity and and to to appreciate other cultures and you know and from our perspective, travel should be a very transformative experience. and so, with these groups that you've taken uh, around Europe. Do you have any stories of people whose perception may have been uh, have, have been changed or, or people who really kind of grew uh, into a greater appreciation for our world?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, Europe is the waiting pool for world exploration. You know, it's the easiest first step. I mean, you've got to talk people out of going back to Hawaii again or, or you know, tele- uh, Florida or something like that. And then once you go international, you got a chance to go to Europe, and you realize, oh, this is exciting, and then you can get beyond Europe. We've had many people in our travels that have started out really very um, reluctant, and uh, you know, once you've been to Istanbul, you realize, wow, I want to go further east.
2: Hmm. with all the traveling that you've done, Rick, you know the question that that we often receive is you know what's your favorite place? And, as you know, that's a very hard question to answer and and you can't really answer it. Um, but there are places that you develop a special affinity for, uh, places that really speak to you, really touch your 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 inner being. Do you have a place like that? Do you have or a couple of places that that you have an incredible affinity for?
1: Uh, yeah, India is my favorite place.
2: And, and why is that? What is it about India?
1: Well, India just uh, humbles your self-assuredness. It rearranges all your cultural furniture. It uh, makes it clear how you know you think you know what's going on until you go to a subcontinent with a billion people who who see things so fundamentally different. And it's uh, it's, it's not right or wrong. It's just really exciting to realize that there's. There's more to music than cut time, 3-4 time, and 4-4 four, four time, 6-8 uh, time, you know, all that kind of thing. There's more to tonality or modality or whatever than major and minor and aeolian. And when you go to India, you realize just in a little example of music, they've got music that doesn't even play by our rules, and it's just as beautiful and just as sophisticated once you've appreciated it as our classical music. Uh, they've got the same differences in religion and in cuisine and in concepts of love and pain and... And uh, you know, it's just amazing to go there and uh, with the wide eyes and to just be a student of a different way of looking at things. My, of course, my beat is Europe. I've, so now I just focus solely on Europe, and uh, I would say Italy is my favorite country in Europe because uh, you know, uh, Italy is the closest thing in Europe to India as far as uh, kind of culture shock for people. Mm. I guess I should say I'm really hot on Istanbul too. I've just uh, I was just in Istanbul last week and to wander through the streets of Istanbul, thriving with people. You know, just a teeming city right now of like 14 million people. It's just amazing. I was, um, I'm having fun on my Facebook page doing a bunch of little video clips from my experience there. And I you know, just took people onto the, the only tram in Istanbul and just to be packed in there with all these people and then to step out and have the, the call to prayer ringing out from minarets all around you. It's just this cacophony of, of uh, song. And then to be on the streets later on that's so crowded that the the the, the tram car can't even go down it anymore um, it's really quite a quite a memorable and exciting experience
2: i, I want to um talk a little bit about your uh your your newest book uh, i have it i'm sitting i'm sorry i I have it on the table uh sitting right next to my bible this book, Mediterranean cruise port is as thick as my Bible <laughs> you have a lot of information uh... that's packed in those uh... those pages How long did it take you really to, to write that book? I mean, there's a ton of effort that, that goes into something that thick, um, and with all the detail that you provide uh, in the book, how time-consuming is this for you?
1: Well, actually, that's the easiest book I've ever written. Really? I think it's 12, 12 or 1,300 pages or something like that, but those are excerpted from our guidebooks that we already had for Spain, France, Italy, Croatia, Greece, Turkey. So, you know, it just occurred to me, uh, you know, I mean, I've got guidebooks that cover every country and every every major city in Europe. And uh, it occurred to me there's a huge market of travelers that are taking cruises. And they've got one day in Spain, uh, you know, it's Barcelona, and two days in France. There's a side trip into Provence and one into the French Riviera. And then four three days in Italy. You got Livorno to go to Florence or Pisa or Lucca. You got Civitavecchia to go to Rome and you got a, a day stop in Naples. And then you go over to Venice, you go to Dubrovnik, you go to Athens, you go to Mykonos, you go to Santorini, you go to Ephesus, Kusadasi in Turkey, which is a side trip to Ephesus, and you go to Turkey or uh, Istanbul. That's pretty predictable. I just list, I just just listed where 80% of the cruisers spend 90% of their time. And uh, I happen to have the best researched, most lovingly put together chapters on each of those cities already existing in the appropriate country guidebooks for each of those countries. And I thought with my publisher, all we need to do is pull those out, take out the hotels, because you don't need a hotel when you're on a cruise, and do research the the port situation and the excursions and all the options you have to be more independent on uh, on shore time and put it all together, and put together a smart introduction to it all, and you get yourself a a dynamite cruise book. And Right out of the starting gate, this book is just four months old, but it's already the best-selling cruise guide for Mediterranean travelers. And I just spent the last month on two different cruises, um, having a wonderful time using this book and fine-tuning it, and um, that's just part of what we do at Europe Through the Back Door with my staff of 80 here in Seattle, is uh, find uh, travelers' needs and fill them and Mm -hmm. a lot of independent-minded people taking cruises for whatever reason and uh, in the dark when it comes to what to do with my precious 8 or 10 hours on shore. And I was very impressed by how in 15 minutes you can be in a spot where there's not a hint of another cruiser and you're actually traveling and then you go back to your... Cruise ship
2: that: night. The Internet has changed the way um, people acquire travel uh, information, uh, how they book their travel, right. um, and even you know as a writer yourself, I mean having written over 50 books, you, to see bookstores closing, how are you adjusting to the changes in the way information is, uh, is, is received?
1: Well, I 'm not really. Um, you know, people can talk about the change in the book business. I, I wouldn't want to be running a bookstore right now. It's a very difficult time. And my, I'm not against electronic versions of my guidebooks. I'm very focused on generating good content. I generate good content for travelers, up to date, lovingly researched content that is incorruptible as far as, you know, who's trying to get in this book and so on. And then whether it appears in print or on somebody's iPhone or on a Kindle. You know, all that's just—I don't really care too much about it. Um, My—I just noticed my royalties. You know, I've got 30 or 40 or 50 books out, and uh, um, my royalties peaked in 2007, and then, you know, when they cut them, went down. They—they dipped for a couple of years, and now they're back up to where it was in 2007, and that's quite a lot of royalties with 50 books, and about 10% of my total royalties is electronic books. And if you went to uh, iTunes now or Amazon and looked under electronic books, for guidebooks in Europe you'd find that Rick Steves' guidebooks are nine out of the top ten. So we're doing the best by far of anybody on electronic guidebooks for Europe. And um, I haven't given it much thought and it's still less than 10% of my total royalties. In other words, paper is still where it's at. It's going to change right now. It's not that big a deal. And I think the proper thing for me as a travel writer to do is trust my publisher to know where's the market, where's the demand, where's the money.
2: Well, that's a good seg- segue to my next question. What book is uh, what book are you working on now?
1: I am working on, well, updating the cruise book because I just spent 20 days cruising and working on it and doing a lot of updating on that. And uh, I'm writing new TV shows because we have... Uh, uh, Constant need to make new TV shows. We produced nine shows this year, which is our most ever, and we'll do six new TV shows next year to release fifteen shows a year about late in 2012. Um, and as far as new guidebooks, working on it's mostly updating existing books. For me, it's a uh, constant. It's like taking care of a huge garden. You know, my garden is Europe, and there's weeds all over the place. And I got to get out there. and <laughs> that
4: up.
1: So you know the the Rome book, what's changing there? The Barcelona, I was just in Barcelona, it's changing a lot. Just in uh, London and Paris, uh, so I'm I'm constantly uh, gardening my existing books, and you know we've pretty much covered Europe, and I don't want to go beyond Europe. So mm-hmm. it's really making sure that the guidebooks we have out and that are updated almost every year uh, are are uh, guidebooks that are uh, as helpful as possible for our traveling readers.
2: You know, um, speaking of your television show, I watched, uh, my husband and I actually watched a special that kind of took us behind the scenes and making of your show, and I was surprised to know that there were only three of you um, traveling. You had, you know, the camera person, you had somebody um, uh, working with the the lighting, uh, outdoor lighting, and and then yourself, and you were up, uh, it seemed like you never slept because you were up constantly writing. Uh, and in memorizing, I'm very envious of your ability to memorize your uh, your own uh, <laughs> content. But um, I, I mean, is that is it really that Spartan as as it looked on this uh, special? I don't know how long ago it was done. Oh yeah,
1: no, we we do. I I left my earlier production company because they insisted on having a big crew. I am really enthusiastic about having a small crew. I have a producer, a cameraman, and me, the host and uh it means we all have to wear a lot of hats and we have to you know we're just living the production i mean we're we're working every if there's good light we're out filming um but it's just a joy to be collaborating with uh people that are so committed to the quality of our t v uh but you know I think that's very nice to have your whole crew in a car and be able to turn on a dime and uh to produce uh, good good uh travel t v I've seen crews over there with crates and all sorts of complexity and different cameras, and lots of people. It's a nightmare. We can do much better TV uh, by having a small, tight, mobile crew.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's public television, so we don't have much money. It's uh, you know guerrilla production. Everything's done in a very creative way. Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised how, compared to other TV shows, how little we spend to produce our TV show. And uh, but if you look at the final product, you know it's it's. Uh, I think it's fair to say it's the best travel on TV
2: right now. I would agree with that. <laughs> I think, uh,
1: sounds immodest, but I'm just so proud of the work <laughs> our our crew does, and uh, we're just uh, we've got our the best shows we've ever produced are, are um, just in the raw footage stage right now. And I'm just I can hardly wait to get them out. see now you can um, because of the new technology, you've got high definition gorgeous stuff that you can with com- with computer programs and so on that you can edit in you know in your back room if you need to and uh, you know 15 years ago this would be unthinkable that a small outfit could produce you know uh, to keep up with with big production companies mm-hmm. uh, it's just a beautiful thing how accessible making the tv is now and uh, i'm just uh, to be able to get there all the the high def uh, material and then our passion for understanding and challenging people's uh, ability to get out of their comfort zones and really uh, appreciate something that just is is so different. It's it's just a beautiful niche. uh, It just endlessly uh, sort of energizes me to, to, to bring more of this home.
2: I can hear the enthusiasm in your voice. So can you give us a a heads up, kind of a sneak peek? We can, you know, if you don't want to broadcast it, we'll call it attorney client privilege and it won't go beyond us, but uh, yeah, right. <laughs> What will your uh, your next season? Oh, it's no
1: you? big secret. We're just working on 15 new shows. We've got, you know, I for the last 10 years, I've really I always say the biggest regret in my work career was not doing high def back in 2001 when we were doing all the great Italy sites Venice, Florence, Rome, the Riviera and so on. And uh, so for 10 years we've had uh, standard definition shows on the greatest sites in Italy, which is my favorite part of Europe. And then I realized now that was actually a blessing because this year I went back with the high definition camera and we're better at it and we have more access. and It's just much, much um, better production values. And now uh, this year we redid those old shows. So now it's nothing real new I just did more depth I got three shows on Rome two shows on Florence uh, we will be doing a show on Venice the NATO and the Cinque Terre that'll be a lot of good strong Italy stuff coming up uh, we did two shows on Paris one on London and then one way up in the north of England hiking along Adrian's Wall and mm. District and Wordsworth Country and Durham Cathedral and everything that's going to be a great show and then uh, we'll also uh, do a three part series uh, next summer which is How to Travel filmed in Europe which I'm very excited about.
2: Hmm. Well, we look forward to uh, to seeing these uh, these shows, and uh, certainly, uh, you know, keep us in mind if you need can extra I, extra staff to. <laughs> I sure will. <laughs> Travel well, people, with can, uh, <laughs> people can uh,
1: stay tuned. A lot of people think we're on Travel Channel, but I'm never on Travel Channel. It's uh, public television. Yes. And I'm always thankful that there is uh, uh, public television, which is a a venue for people uh, like me who are really passionate about something, who want to create programming not shaped by advertiser interests, that respects people's intelligence and assumes an attention span, that kind of programming, uh, I believe you only really see it these days on public television. And it's so great to have that in our society, uh, even as we're making a lot of uh, unfortunate uh, you know, austerity major cuts. Uh, we don't need to strip everything that's elegant about a lot of our society. Thank goodness we still have uh, non-commercial broadcasting.
2: Indeed. And uh, people can follow your whereabouts, your your television schedule, your radio schedule, kind of uh, track you as you travel from your website, ricksteves.com. And we'll also have a link to your website on nice. our website at World Footprints. And, uh, well,
1: let's put a link on my website to your website. That'll be great.
2: Love to. Love to. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Rick Steves, Good. for joining us today. And uh, safe travels wherever you have Next. Thank you, Tony. Happy travel.
0: Most people don't think of Detroit as a vibrant tourist destination, but Philip Lowry thinks otherwise.
4: Detroit is a haven for that. I mean, you saw saw at least a few eras of musical development come from Detroit. You know, Motown, you've got techno. Um, But there's no better collection of French Gothic architecture.
0: As World Footprints continues.
3: Hi, my name is Catherine from France and I love listening to World Footprints Radio.
0: Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy Jr., actress Stephanie Powers, director Ken Burns, David Rockefeller Jr., and other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and support public diplomacy. Travel with us to unique places around the world. Join us in our efforts to raise awareness about environmental conservation and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Visit our interactive and informative website, worldfootprints.com.
3: Hi, I'm Callie Schultz from the great city of New Orleans, and you're listening to World Footprints Radio. We can't wait to see you in New Orleans very soon.
1: And now, more of World
0: Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick.
2: Welcome back to World Footprint. I'm Tony Fitzpatrick. Imagine leaving your Fortune 500 employer in the vibrant cities of Chicago and Portland to move to Detroit and start up a new company in a city that some have written off. That's just what Philip Lurie did when he felt the pull of Detroit. Philip is the founder and director of Detroit Lives. Philip, welcome.
4: Thank you, thank you.
2: So what exactly is Detroit Lives?
4: Uh, Detroit Lives is a, is a social brand, um, and we sort of flap our wings through uh, multimedia production uh, that tells a, a more positive and constructive story about Detroit. So that translates to uh, filmmaking. Uh, makes, uh, we're pr- currently producing a documentary film. Um, that uh, translates to a clothing line that we have that's sold throughout Detroit, Metro Detroit, and regionally, um, and actually around the country, too. And uh, we do like public art in the city, and we have a, a blog that uh, reports on kind of constructive and positive dialogue uh, in and around the city
2: and what is it about Detroit that actually inspired you to move there because you're not a Michigan native, aren't you?
4: No, actually I am i was born in, uh, I was born in Rochester
2: okay, so what what brought you back though? What inspired you to return?
4: well, I, I think that you know it was. First of all, it was the disparity between kind of the public perception of what Detroit was, and 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 versus my perception, um, basically the perception that I had gained kind of through my grandpa. He had a uh, a supermarket on the east side, and um, it, you know it was kind of the difference between those two perceptions and the space between that kind of inspired me to to start trying to tell that more positive, constructive story that it seemed like so many people were missing. Um, and so from there, you know, it started with a blog and uh, and a clothing line that I got into some shops around here, and it just sort of it sort of grew from there. Um, but I think what's kept me here is just the fact that uh, that people, young people in particular, can really have a voice here in Detroit. Um, there's obviously a lot of of needs, and uh, you know, both large and small, I think that. You know, you're really able to have an effect here, to have a to have a voice. You know, you're able to feel kind of the fruits of your labor, unlike any sort of work experience that I had ever had.
2: And so, you know, Detroit is not a city that's dying. It's not one that's being written off. I mean, do you see a lot of um, shift in, uh, in 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 industry there? I mean, I mean, what would attract a young person to Detroit, or even to to remain in Detroit?
4: Yeah, well, I think I think that the um that the attraction point for Detroit right now if you're a young person is you know, it's typically that person in the workforce for a couple years, maybe 3 years, and um and just sort of figured out that certain components of whatever it was that they were doing didn't necessarily work out and a lot of times it's people start something on their on their own and um and Detroit is kind of a haven for that. I mean, from from low business barriers to entry uh, to low cost of living, you know these things help um, as as like a catalyst for growth. And so a lot of young people are coming here with that sort of um, you know uh, motivation, and it's 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 resulting in a lot of um, a lot of new developments, I mean everything from stuff in the in the creative sector, so software development, mobile applications, um, you know design. Uh, but then also to um, to like food uh... we've got a really like cool burgeoning kind of like foodie scene so you're seeing a lot of new restaurants and cafes and and that's just you know that's that's kind of what makes it vibrant and what makes it makes it exciting you know i mean yeah we're on ground zero for for a lot of this new stuff but but it's it's really fun to see it unfold
2: mm-hmm. i want you uh, i want to ask you to elaborate on some of the projects uh... that you you've done in past and and those that you are doing um, that are helping the city, and you alluded to um, a couple of them. And namely, uh, I'm interested in learning more about your film project.
4: The film that uh, we're currently in post-production with, it is a it is a documentary film uh, sort of discussing uh, solutions for post-industrial revival. We're addressing that idea through two landmark cities, uh, Detroit, obviously, and then Poland's third-largest city, uh, called Łódź, and um, Łódź was one of Europe's largest textile manufacturers. And with the fall of communism, the industry collapsed, and it left in its wake uh, a variety of conditions that are very similar to what we see here in Detroit. So, structural unemployment, population loss, urban decay—you um, know, kind of that same defeatist attitude uh, that you see here in Detroit. And so, the idea was to was to to be in both places interviewing everyone from you know the mayor and city officials to community leaders uh, artists everything and everything in between and so what we got was a was a really sort of fascinating pool of people in both cities that are championing that that revival and that are championing that change and the film sort of tells those story uh, as a collective you know whole and so you know it's looking at what are the factors that are leading to growth and revival what are people doing real tangible things not just like well you know lofty high end development goals so these are very tangible things that people are doing and it tells a very hopeful and inspiring story about the future of our cities because it isn't just Detroit and it isn't just Wooch. you know this is uh, the notion of post industrialism is something that you know we're facing. All over the U.S., but you know, there's cities in Brazil. Uh, there's cities all over the world that are, that are facing this same challenge, where globalization has shifted the way that nation states and cities are producers, and um, and so they have to retool their economies. and that And that process is very hard. and um, And so this this film sort of gives the roadmap for for two specific cities, but addresses the notion of post-industrialism with you know kind of a global context.
2: And what are you seeing in terms of a movement towards sustainable development, and you know, and uh, eco development, and keeping, you know, with uh, with growth in 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 certain cities like Detroit? I mean, I think Detroit's growth kind of ebbs and flows. Um, but with any new development, are you seeing a move towards um, green, uh, sustainable, you know, economic, uh, environmentally friendly um, initiatives?
4: Yeah, well I think that I think that that's, you know, one of the major pieces of the puzzle. No doubt about it. Um, you know, the overwhelming reality of what we found is that, you know, the solution isn't isn't one specific thing. It's it's many things coming together. Um, so it's not it's not just, you know, top down um, you know, economic development and it's not just bottom up sort of grassroots development. It's kind of got to be a combination of everything. Um, whichever way you go though there's no question that you have to keep an eye for sustainable development i mean we've seen we've seen the failure of of sort of skewed capitalism so to speak and that it, it sort of ignores those those green and sustainable uh motives and and that that simply doesn't work and so there's no doubt that uh that we need to to have a mindful eye not just for like you know, recycling, and, but really having a sustainable eye for shared value. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking at, you know, value for the consumer, value for the producer, and what's going to produce the overall best results.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, um, one of the things that I noticed, you know, you're, you're based in Detroit. We're here in D.C., and I know that you've partnered with a D.C.-based nonprofit uh, called Fashion Fights. Poverty. Talk about that partnership and how that integrates itself into uh, your mission for Detroit.
4: Yeah, well, FFP, you know, has has done a really great job of of uh, of combining social vision and social action with with fashion. And um, you know, they uh, we we got in touch with them, and and our, our missions were actually you know very similar um, in the sense that we're using fashion here as a tool to sort of change. Hardened perceptions about about the city of Detroit and its potential, and so based on that, you know we had some similarities, but what we 're finding is that a lot of our actions you know are similar, and so we 're utilizing the skills of uh, of of designers that have worked with FFp to um, to work with us here in Detroit, uh, doing everything from designing clothing to looking at um, ways that they can step in and help with some of the projects that we 're doing on the ground. Um, we're also, you know, sharing resources in, in that, um, you know, we, we have a whole clothing production here. And so, um, you know, helping out people that, uh, work with FFP to sort of give tips and ideas on how they can make that sort of thing work for them. Um, but then also just having, having their talent pool and network, uh, to help us spread our message, you know, further beyond their borders here in Detroit, but to, uh, but to get sort of uh, more national coverage and and uh, and to get the word out on a national level, and they've been very instrumental in helping us with that. Because, as you know, there's one of the one of Detroit's biggest talents is uh, its exporting of talent. So mm-hmm. there's plenty of uh, Detroit expats all over the country, and so FFP has been uh, has been and will be instrumental in helping us uh, reach that audience.
2: Mm-hmm. What do you see? You know, we come back home quite quite often, whether it be for the holidays or, you know, any other family members. Um, my husband uh lived in uh Ipsy and um we both have family in Detroit and then, you know, I grew up in, in Lansing, so we're we're home uh quite often. But and and we see changes every time we we go through Detroit or really any anywhere in Mid Michigan. There's always right. something going on. But but you live there now. You've re, you returned uh, after living away. How has the city changed since your arrival? And really, where do you see Detroit going in the future?
4: Well, I, I think that the difference, the big difference right now, is that so there's there's a population that's seeing the cracks in our system sort of are revealing opportunities. Um, and, and that's, you know, that, that shift, I think, is taking place. So more people are realizing that, like, yes, we have our troubles here, but that doesn't necessarily, necessarily spell disaster. You know, so, so what, what has happened with our housing market, for example, um, you know, it, it provides a way for for people to be here and to call home base here because it's it's very inexpensive, and so I think that that mentality is spreading a little bit further, and that you know, we're people are starting to realize that. Um, but in terms of the future, um, you know, I see Detroit standing for for progress. I think that you know we we are sort of the epic failure of the American dream, and we're we're sort of ground zero for. For developing a new system, and you know we talked about um, sustainable green development i think that I think that Detroit is positioned um as possibly one of the best examples in the country of being able to reinvent that system um, and and if anybody is is positioned to do that it 's us i mean we're confronting very real and difficult challenges that that a lot of cities. Might not be confronting simply because they don't have to you know in a lot of cases they've got sustainable industry that that aids them in overlooking those those real issues um here we don't we don't have that luxury, and so we're pushing very hard right now to 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 make changes in that capacity, and I think that you know ten years down the road. Um, you'll see you'll see small incremental changes. You'll see uh, neighborhoods starting to develop. You'll see more greater connection between those neighborhoods. Uh, you'll see uh, greater uh, public services and efficiency at the city and municipal level. Um, you know it's not going to be a hundred percent different city, but I think that you know Detroit will stand for progress because we're starting from the very be- we're starting from the very bottom.
2: Well, you know, I, I tell you cities uh there I know a couple of cities uh including Baltimore, I think, who uh that are looking at Detroit as a model um to base, you know, their their progression, their growth on. And so uh, yeah, as a Michiganer um, a Michigander, you know, I'm quite proud so yeah. <laughs> of, of what we're doing. And you know, and and you and I are both biased, uh but uh you know, and rightly so, but for somebody who's never been to Detroit or, you know, thinks, "Oh my gosh, you guys are crazy." What would you tell that audience, uh that listener uh, about Detroit and its viability as not only a domicile, a, a place to call home, but also as a tourist destination and a place worthy uh, of visiting?
4: Well, I mean, it's it's quite simple. I mean, in terms of culture, um there Detroit is a haven for that. I mean, you saw you saw at least a few eras of musical development come from Detroit. You know, you've got Motown. You've got techno, um, but there's no better collection of French Gothic architecture. Um, where else can you see wonderful Italian Renaissance buildings uh, other than in Detroit? Um, we have architecture still intact that that many cities. Uh, you know could never shake a stick at it and, and and a lot of europeans come to detroit to see that kind of stuff um, and and culture is something that that uh, many cities have to sort of like create or make up but in detroit it, it really oozes from us and and i think that one of the the city's challenges is is laying that that sort of path for people so like when visitors do come you know how can they access these sorts of cultural destinations and, and so I think that it's it 's kind of hard, you know and that 's what that 's what makes it difficult and that 's why it 's easy to form those hardened opinions but I mean, there's there's so many things and places to see. I mean, there's there's new restaurants, there's new cafes, there's new businesses, there's young people doing incredible things, there's there's unbelievable forms of community engagement, um, leaders and communities that are that are literally changing the face of their neighborhood, and and that's a really really big deal. I mean, this is very fundamental stuff that that again most cities aren't confronting. You know, mm-hmm. that these these pocket neighborhoods. This in a lot of cities. They don't. They don't have to address them because they have a healthcare industry, or, or because. You know, they they have things that, that push them forward, but we're confronting very fundamental issues that are creating an entirely different outlook for for an American city. And I and I think that anyone that is curious about the future of our country, you know, it's undeniable that Detroit sits in a posi- in a very very influential position. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that I think that that alone is fascinating to see. I mean, in 30 years, there's no question that that, that Detroit, where it is right now, is going to be a very very significant time period there's no doubt about it we're at the bottom we're moving up and we are in desperate need of an this country i mean look at all the occupy wall street look at look at the broken forms of capitalism the banks closing the the short sales on all these homes all over the country we need some help and i think that i think that detroit is positioned very wonderfully to To help. I don't know if we'll be the answer, but I think that there's no doubt that we can help. And from an outsider's point of view, to be able to see the city. At its at its current stage right now is very significant. You know, it's kind of like you know having seen Jimi Hendrix play in a small club before he got large. You know,
2: your enthusiasm is undeniable, and you are such a great ambassador uh, for the city of Detroit. We should start a Facebook campaign to have uh, Mayor Bing give you a key to the city and you know (laughs) a little ticker (laughs) tape parade (laughs) uh, because you're you're doing great work. And so I'd love to encourage everyone listening to visit your website.
4: which is? Uh, it's org.
2: Okay, and Detroit surely does live and will continue to thrive. And thank you so much, Philip Lurie, uh founder and director of Detroit Lives. Thanks so much for joining us today.
4: Oh, thanks for having me.
2: We are happy that you were able to join us today. And if you want more of World Footprints and everything that we have to offer, including travel deals and our library of archive shows, Follow us, friend us, and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time.
3: Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best. The Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada, Banff National Park, Natural Beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio, they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio.
0: World Footprints Radio is a presentation
4: of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC, all rights reserved.